This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Friday, December 15th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe in for Dave. Let's hit those horns and go. Coming up on the show today, the news panel assembles to tackle the top stories of the week. We have Joita Gupta in, as well as Mike Ross and myself, and we will discuss the recently unveiled details around the National Dental Care Plan. How might this impact the next federal election? We'll also explore how Indigenous Services Minister Patty Haiju tabled the legislation for improved water quality in First Nations communities. How does the delay on this work influence how you receive this news? And finally, the UN Climate Summit saw an agreement between 200 countries to transition away from fossil fuels. How does this change your perception of the summit overall? We will tackle those stories and more on the show. But first, we begin with the top news stories of the day. We are beginning on the international front as the Palestinian prime minister is calling on the U.S. to walk the walk in seeking a two-state solution to end the conflict in the region. Ben Thomas files this story. Implement the two-state solution not only believe in two states. The Prime Minister of the Palestinian Authority, Mohammed Shatea, tells AP the Biden administration should take concrete steps to mandate the Security Council to put together a timetable for Israel to end its occupation to the Palestinian territory. But Israel's President Isaac Herzog tells AP now's not the time. In order to get back to the idea of dividing the land or negotiating peace or talking to the Palestinians, etc. One has to deal first and foremost with the emotional uh, trauma that we're going through and the need and demand for full sense of security for our people. I'm Ben Thomas. And back here at home, senators have voted to increase restrictions around guns in the country. Brenda Melina Navidad has more. Senators voted 60 to 24 in favor of Bill C-21. The bill ushers in new measures to keep firearms out of the hands of domestic abusers and increases maximum penalties for gun smuggling and trafficking to 14 years from 10. It also includes a ban on assault-style firearms that fall under a new technical definition. Federal regulations aimed at capping the number of handguns in Canada are also now in effect. Survivors and victims of some of the worst mass shootings in Canada have welcomed the development. Brenda Molina Navidad, The Canadian Press. Four of Canada's Griffin helicopters will be sent to Latvia next summer as part of a NATO deter uh, deterrence mission in the region. And Karen Rebo has more from this story. 
Defense Minister Bill Blair made the announcement this morning alongside Defense Staff Chief General Wayne Eyre as the two visit Canadian troops at Camp Adazi, just outside Riga, where Canada leads a NATO battle group. The number of Canadian troops in the Baltic country is set to double to around 2,200 by 2026 as NATO scales up its battle groups in the region to brigades. As part of that plan, Canada has sent 15 Leopard tanks to Latvia and it's procuring anti-tank missile systems. In addition, in addition to the Griffins arriving next summer, Canada also plans to send Chinook helicopters in the fall of 2025. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. The EU has agreed to open ascension talks with Ukraine about joining the bloc. Here's Tom Sufi Burridge with more. EU leaders have agreed to open accession talks with Ukraine. It doesn't mean that Ukraine is going to join the EU tomorrow, but it's a hugely, hugely symbolic moment. And it's significant for Ukraine. It means a lot to the country when really things on the battlefield right now are not going in their direction. And the House of Commons Immigration Committee says that the government should set a deadline to clear immigration backlogs they are currently experiencing. Brenda Molina Navidad has all the details. The committee has released a substantial report on immigration backlogs that includes 40 recommendations to ease the weights for potential newcomers. As of the end of October, the Immigration Department had more than 963,000 applications in the backlog, which represents 43% of all applications in the system. The committee says the government should set a deadline to clear the backlog and allow people to see the status of their case online. It's also echoing decades-long calls for an ombudsperson to oversee the department, supervise processing times, and order changes as needed. Brenda Molina-Navidad, The Canadian Press. And finally, back here at home, researchers say that work is being done to look into ways to treat long COVID. Karen Rebo has been covering this story as well. Debilitating long COVID symptoms include extreme fatigue, brain fog, shortness of breath, even cardiac problems. Some people report they've suffered for nearly four years. Dr. Angela Chung, head of the Long COVID Web Network of scientists, doctors and patients across the country, says these researchers are learning how to manage symptoms while trying to find ways to eliminate the illness through treatment. The network has started a clinical trial to study drugs that could potentially act on the root causes of long COVID. Those could include an excessive inflammation response to COVID-19 and damage to cells. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press, Toronto. And that's it for the top news stories of the day. It's now time for the daily polls. And we will begin by looking at yesterday's results where I asked you, how comfortable are you renting a room in someone's home through an online platform. This was all based around a conversation on the online platform Sparrow. Only 9% of you said you're very comfortable. 0% said somewhat. And 91% of you said you are not at all comfortable. We had some great responses online through Facebook. Uh, Tanika said, not at all. It has to be someone I know. And even then, I have to trust them wholeheartedly. JR wrote in, not comfortable. I don't know who that person is. And as children, we were told to avoid strangers. And at the end of the day, we are all strangers when we are adults. That's very well put there as well, JR. And, and lastly, Philippe wrote, very comfortable, especially when it's someone that you know, um, whether it is online or in 
person. So thank you all for voting and writing in and sharing your comments. Today's daily poll question refers to the conversation I'm going to have at the end of the show with Karen McKay from SELA, who is going to be reviewing kind of the top uh, books and, and uh, um, kind of top choices for the year for the SELA collection. But I want to find out from you, what is your favorite format to read books? Is it audiobook, digital, printed, or other? And if you do vote other, be sure to leave a comment and let us know what your choice is. And you can do so by voting on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. or on Twitter at Accessible Media. So for now, let's welcome in Laura Bain and Mike Ross, who is filling in as co-host to get their thoughts on this. Laura, I'll start with you. What is your favorite way to consume books? What's your favorite format? Is it audiobook, digital, printed, or other? Well, you know, for me, it's been a little bit of a journey, Alex. So um, when I was a kid, I could read print books. I had more eyesight, and I would go to the library and just bring home, like, stacks of books. I loved um, printed books and kind of the smell of them and that experience. But as I got older with retinitis pigmentosa, like my eyesight deteriorated and it was more and more difficult. And then discovering audiobooks was really amazing for me because, um, you know, I could sort of read the books everybody was reading and have access to that again. And that's been, you know, a really long time that I've consumed a lot of audiobooks, but I've started to move towards digital a little bit, just in the last few years. Um, and I use the Kindle app on my iPad and voiceover to do that. And like, I still like audiobooks a lot for fiction and memoirs and things like that, but the digital just opens up other options that aren't necessarily available on audiobook. And it gives me a lot more control. So for something like a travel book or a book for school, you can move around in the same way that you could with a print book instead of having to like scrub through the audio for what you're looking for. Um, and I've started to learn Braille again in the last few months. It, you know, it's slowly going and that would be my hope that eventually I'd be able to read my books in Braille because um, that allows you so much, you know, you can read in your own voice um, and you can read out loud and you can have that same sort of interaction that you have with the printed copy. So um, yeah, I've had relationships with all different forms of you know, media for books, and perhaps we all can tell that I'm a I'm a passionate book lover. <laughs> <laughs> well, how many times have we talked already this even this week, Laura, just about different formats and books? I mean, yesterday we were talking about uh, uh, audio books and just like what really makes an audio book an audio book as well. So mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm fascinated though to hear that you're you're exploring all these different kind of formats still, and it's not just kind of focused in on one that you are expanding your your reach and and kind of trying out these different formats as well mike my ross what about for you books it, oh sorry i was just gonna say no, no, Alex, go ahead, my Laura. appetite my appetite for books is so big it can't be filled by just one <laughs> form of media so fair enough mike ross what about you when it comes to format how do you like to enjoy your books I am still very much a page turner. I, I I tried the digital thing and I just can't do it. I like to hold the book. I like to flip a page. I like having a bookmark. I mean, it's just, mm. just things that I really enjoy about the the activity of reading is the physicality of it. Um, but I will say the other thing that has stopped me from trying audiobooks is that for 
many years, and I'm talking almost 25 years now, when I go to sleep at night, I like to have the radio on. So whether I'm listening to classic radio shows or I'm listening to podcasts, it's it's almost like this thing where I like to be um, sort of talked to sleep, kind of like akin to having someone read you a story. So my fear is that if I start going into audiobooks, that I'm going to sit down and I'm going to put one on and I'm just going to doze off within about five minutes because that's my 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 nightly habit. Yeah. And, you know, can I, I just can't imagine if I'm driving along and I'm listening to an audio book, like I don't <laughs> want it to, to make me tired. I don't want to doze off or anything. Um, so I, I really have stayed away from audio just for that reason alone uh, that I just I don't want to sleep on it. I, I, I find that when I'm listening to podcasts and I'm driving, I find I miss bits and pieces because I'm trying to focus on on the mm-hmm. task at hand. So I don't want to. If, if, I want to be fully immersed in the book, and if I'm if I'm doing something else, I find that I'm going to be distracted from it. it. To me, it's a little bit different when you're listening to a podcast, and you know I'm cooking or I'm doing some housework. I don't mind getting a little bit lost and and maybe hitting rewind and and seeing or, or hearing something that I just missed. But I find that with an audio book, you, you don't want to miss any of it. Every word is so important. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm very much a page turner. I like to have the physical book, and and I can't do the audio book, at least not yet. Well, and, and also, I, I, you have the whole collection behind you on a bookshelf, so you like to display it after. You can't really display the audio books, and then especially when you condition yourself to go to sleep with uh, someone talking to you. True. Yeah, that may I can see why that could be a problem as well. Yeah, well, <laughs> here's the thing. 25 years plus in, in radio this time of year, especially working in sports radio, this is the time of year when the authors are all coming through doing interviews and selling mm-hmm. their books for the holiday season. So I, I mean, you see a lot of them behind me. There are a lot of these books that came from those types of interviews. And there are tons more that I donated to the local high school here where I live because they were just books that I was never, ever going to reread. I wanted somebody to enjoy them. I'm, I wasn't mm-hmm. going to have them recycled or, or, or anything like that, but... Yeah, you you amass quite a collection, and you guys know interviewing authors on uh, on the show as well. You you start collecting those books, and they start to pile up. <laughs> Absolutely, thank you both for chiming in on the daily poll. We will be checking in with you throughout the show, uh, but. For you at home, I want to hear from you as well. So vote on the poll at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, at Accessible Media on Twitter, feedback at AMI.ca if you want to send an email instead, or give us a call, 1-866-509-4545. Coming up after the break, though, the news panel kicks off. You've already heard from Mike Ross. Juwita Gupta will join the mix as well, and we will discuss the recently unveiled details around a national dental care plan. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. back to now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe. It's Friday. So what does that mean? It's the time to assemble the weekly news 
panel as I stumble over my own words on that. So let's welcome in the panelists. Today we have, as usual, Joita Gupta joining us and filling in for Michelle McQuig, it's Mike Ross. Hello, Joita. Hi, Alex. And hello again, Mike. Good to be here. Okay, so our first topic is all around the federal dental plan. The federal government unveiled details on the National Dental Care Plan this week. The dental benefits plan, uh, plan is aimed at people with an annual household income under $90,000 who don't have access to private insurance. People over 87 will be the first cohort eligible for the plan next year. And Health Minister Mark Holland explains how the rollout will work from there. That's why we're going to be opening application in phases, starting with seniors and then people with disabilities, children under 18, and then ultimately by 2025, all eligible Canadians. And Holland lays out some of the stats behind this policy. A third of Canadians today do not have access to dental insurance through their employer. One in four have said they were unable to visit an oral health professional because it was too expensive. And the dental care plan is a pillar of the supply and confidence agreement between the Liberals and NDP. And NDP health critic Don Davies believes that this is a policy as, and it's a big step as a policy for Canada. In this minority parliament, new Democrats have once again worked constructively to achieve another healthcare breakthrough. By working in cooperative partnership with our Liberal colleagues, New Democrats have helped secure dental care for 9 million Canadians. It's no exaggeration to say that this is the biggest expansion of public health care in Canada in many generations. And with that expansion, this plan is set to cost $13 billion over the next five years. Joita, this was your topic that you pitched. So what aspects of this story did you want to brush up on? Well, as you said, it is uh, addressing both a long-standing gap in our healthcare system and a key feature of the confidence and supply agreement between the NDP and Liberals. Both issues are ones that we have talked about in some detail on the panel before. But I think it's worthwhile digging deep into some of the details of the plan to get a sense of how everyone feels about the plan in general and also to then examine any potential gaps. But I think the million dollar question is with a federal election now maybe less than two years away, who will be the winners and losers politically? What will this mean for the political fortunes of certainly the pro uh, progressive conservatives, but also the liberals and the NDP? At least the liberals aren't doing as well as they, I think they'd like in the polls. Is this going to be the, you know, what puts the wind back in their sails? So there's so many layers to uncover in this story. Um, but I think it, it is worthwhile to perhaps start by thinking through some of the, um, the, the details of the plan. I mean, they have thought about a lot. But again, it's also worth thinking about whether they left something off the table. Yeah, exactly. So let's start with the plan itself. So, Mike, what do you think of the, the plan overall? Well, first of all, uh, as a resident and voter in Ajax, Ontario, I was proud to see my MP, the Health Minister Mark Holland, making that announcement. But um, you know, as as you will know, Alex, and certainly Joita will know, uh, I often wear the hat of the cynic, and there, you know, Joita said off the top there that it addresses a certain gap um, in the healthcare system, and it does. But 
I also think that there, the devil is in the details here. And what, what kind of coverage, what quality of coverage are people going to get? And I just want to draw on, on a personal um, anecdote of, of an experience of my own dealing with healthcare provided in a private insurance setting versus if I went public. So I had a very minor uh, foot surgery a few years back. And the the doctor, the chiropodist who was doing it, explained to me that, you know, if you have insurance, which I thankfully did, the 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 operation or the the surgery, the procedure, would be much less painful, and would be much more thorough than if I went and had the same procedure done at a hospital through the public system. The public system and, and the, I guess the, the guidelines that they follow for that particular procedure meant that it was a different approach to the surgery. There were certain um, ways of doing the surgery that would be less invasive and would mean a, a quicker healing process if I went with the private insurance versus going public system. It's just sort of a scaled down basic rudimentary surgery to take care of your problem. If it's in the public system, it's cheaper to do. So I wonder when it comes to dental work and what's included in this plan, what are we really getting or what are people who are going to be qualifying for this type of dental work? What kind of service are they getting? And are they having to endure more pain simply because it's a government provided service and and it paid for by the government versus private insurance because i know that in that one instance where i dealt with private versus public the private was going was much less invasive much less painful and was just a quicker healing process and and i was quite thankful that because of my wife having benefits i was able to partake in that and, and I think that's a very good point, Mike, especially when you start to explore oral surgeries, which is in uh, a part of this dental plan and part of the coverage. I think on the kind of the smaller scale of things like the dental cleanings and dental works, I, I don't see that as necessarily having that much of a change in gap because you're still going to the same dentist, you're still going through the same locations. It's not like you're gonna to go to a hospital versus a, a dental office for those types of factors. But when you do ex get into oral surgeries or, or work that needs to be done that is gonna be a bit more invasive, do those procedures get split in between a uh, private versus a public kind of forum and options available because that's the same thing like for when I went for a cataract surgery. But uh, Joita, for you, what are some of the maybe the, the gaps and concerns or are there other thoughts you have on the program overall? Well, before we get into the gaps and concerns, I think it is worth noting a few things. The first is that it's not really a universal coverage in the mm -hmm. sense of uh, universal Medicare that we have in Canada. So there are no means tests to go see a family doctor, for instance. I mean, you, you have a handful of private family physicians and things like that, but it's hard to get an exemption from the public health system in Canada. So yes, they exist, but they are few and far between. Um, here you've got a situation where you have to have dentists uh, agree to register or be recruited into the program. And so not everybody is necessarily going to accept this public form of 
of dental care. But beyond that, I mean, the people who are the first recipients are seniors over the age of 87. And I have to say, for starters, that's not a bad thing. Even if it means that not all seniors are getting it right away, by the time 2025 rolls around, coincidentally in time for the next election, uh, most seniors, indeed most eligible Canadians, will get it. And 9 million people, though not everybody, is not an insubstantial about. I think it's about 25% of our population that would now have access to healthcare. We can certainly examine some of those gaps. And it covers a, a wide range of procedures, ranging from cosmetic procedures, things like cleaning and polishing, right through to things like crowns and, and fillings uh, and, and getting into things like extractions and uh, and uh, other types of oral surgeries. So it really does cover a wide range of procedures uh, when it comes to dental care in, in particular. Uh, but again, there are a number of, of issues that, that are not being adequately addressed in the plan, though at first blush, it does appear to be quite comprehensive, having covered a wide range of dental procedures. And certainly, as you pointed out, Alex, when it comes to things like cleaning and polishing and preventative um, preventative dental work, which I am a big proponent of, uh, if you can get a cleaning every three to six months, it's a good way to try and catch dental problems before they get out of hand. So the fact that a lot of people will have access to preventative dental care that maybe they wouldn't have been able to afford before is nothing to sneeze at either. So mm -hmm. it's not a bad start. But what underpins a lot of my concerns is that it's really not truly universal in the sense yeah. that not everybody across the board gets it. And what are the implications of something not being truly universal, I think, is where a lot of my concerns around the gaps and limitations stem from. Well, and as, as uh, you said, you know, this is uh, 9 million people, as, as uh, they had uh, stated, will fall under this plan, will have access to it. And in, in one of the clips we played off the start, they said about a third of Canadians just don't have adequate access. So there is still that slight gap of there's millions of people who kind of fall in between the coverage and having their, their own coverage that are kind of uh, left out of this uh, purview. Maybe there is room for expansion down the road to see how this works well. But another thing uh, you, you mentioned, Juita, I thought I wanted to pick up on was the rollout of this plan. As you said, like they're starting with uh, with seniors in, in their 80s first, but then as um, uh, the health minister uh, mentioned, the next wave includes folks with disabilities. Do you see that as like a, a big kind of step forward in the recognition of taking a needs-based approach and rollout to this plan? Yes, no, it is, it is. I mean, I'm not going to scoff at that at all. I think it is an important uh, improvement on our existing healthcare system. Uh, again, bearing in mind that a lot of people with disabilities uh, don't have adequate employment, uh, including benefits. I mean, one of the things we should point out is that if you do have a, a, a dental plan, let's say from an employer, then you don't get to access the public uh, benefits, even if you would be otherwise eligible. But for those who are not, uh, able to enroll in an employer-sponsored health and dental plan, then this is your safety net. So yes, the fact that seniors are being covered is hugely important because by the time you're a senior in your, let's say, late 80s, uh, you do start to have extensive dent uh, problem, dental problems. You may be in need of dentures, which I know from having dealt with an elderly relative can run you thousands of dollars. They're not cheap. Um, but seniors are a lot likely to have uh, an employer-sponsored, you know, dental plan. Maybe you had one when you were at work, but few, 
employment-sponsored health and dental plans continue after the person has retired. I mean, some probably do, but not everybody. So that's not universal. And then when you get into things like uh, the Trillium Health Benefit in Ontario, then there are tests around income. So not every senior gets that either. So it can it it does meet a very important need for for the elderly and for seniors, uh, but it's not. It's not a panacea. I mean, I think we can acknowledge that. Uh, the fact that, you know, we're looking at this $90,000 um, in eligibility criteria. Sure, $90,000 household income sounds like a lot, but I mean, the way things are going, you could have a couple, each of whom makes a salary of, let's say, $50,000 apiece. So that brings their income to 100000 And you could live in a place like Toronto or Vancouver and find that you're still struggling. You're still middle class. Maybe you're sort of lower middle class even. And so we, we have to really ask ourselves about that 90,000 number. Is that going to still make sense five years down the line, 10 years down the line, given mm -hmm. that we've had some very disturbing conversations about cost of living and the fact that those costs, be it around housing or the price of groceries or the price of gas, none of that is going down. In fact, it's just climbing up and up and up. So are they going to revisit that 90,000 figure or is that going to be static five, six years down the road. And the other big gap that I have is, as I said, it does impact 9 million Canadians, about 25% of the population. But fast forward to 2025, if we get a progressive conservative government in there, then because it's not universal in the sense that it applies to everybody across the board, you run the risk that someone is going to turn around and say, you know what, it costs $13 billion and it only helps a handful of people, we can get rid of it. It becomes easier to get rid of a program because it's not universal, because it doesn't apply to everybody. And that makes the program vulnerable. So those are just some of the gaps. I have other concerns as well, but mm -hmm. I don't want to talk too much. So there you go. <laughs> you, you've been listed down think... quite a few there, Joita. And, and Mike, I did hear you uh, kind of chime in with a green on some of Juita's points, yeah. so well, uh, absolutely. I, I think you know this. This is a, a good rollout from a bureaucratic standpoint, because if you were to roll it out for you know everybody or a, a huge portion of the population, we've seen that this government and previous governments, we don't have the bureaucratic setup to roll out massive programs. Mm -hmm. They're overwhelmed. Right. Talk to anybody who works for the federal government about the Phoenix pay system that they're still dealing with. I mean, <laughs> Joey, you and I talked about that years ago on Live from Studio <laughs> yeah. 5. We were talking Phoenix pay system and people are still you know, working their way through that. The government, in many instances, is not set up or not prepared to to set up and, and, and roll out these programs. So taking it and applying it to the most vulnerable or the most uh, in need is so important. And when you talked, Juita, about you know people with disabilities, seniors, people whose employment numbers are generally lower, um, guess what comes with that, right? It's that cost of living that Juita talked about. And when you hear about people saying, well, I have to choose between you know heating my home on a regular basis or buying groceries, well, guess what else sort of takes a back seat? Dental work. That's mm -hmm. that's always been, right? I know a lot of people who say, I haven't been to the dentist in, in 10 years because I just can't afford it. I don't have insurance and I have other things that I have to put my money towards. Mm -hmm. Problem is, for many people, well, for all of us really, it's not just your teeth. Your dental health has a major impact on many other parts of mm -hmm. your overall health.
So when when that dental and oral health starts to falter, then you start developing other issues. It can be blood issues. It can be cardiac. There are all kinds of things that can pop up if you don't have good oral health care. So I think it's really important that it does get sort of rolled out to the people who are, are really up against it financially uh, in in many situations and certainly more than uh, a majority of Canadians. And, and I think it's a smart thing to roll it out if I can say a little bit at a time to those who are most in need and, and then hopefully at some point get it rolled out to um, a majority, if not all Canadians, but universality we'll see down the road. But uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's such an important part of everyone's overall health that I'm glad to see that they're being pretty smart about how they're rolling it out. They're not going to, it won't be a system that's going to be overwhelmed uh, at least not based on what we've seen with other government rollouts. And uh, quickly, Mike, I want to uh, give you one last chance to respond on this topic and, and to a point that Juita t- uh, touched on at the end there about how this plan and rollout may impact the next federal election. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think, I mean, for the Liberals, it's an easy win. Um, you know, how they are going to sell it is is going to be interesting to see. For the NDP... You know, I'm, I'm, I love the fact that they forced the government's hand on this and the mm-hmm. government can stand there and, and, and say, you know, we, we roll this out. We roll this out. You only rolled it out because you got pushed right to the precipice and your hold on power was threatened. Uh, and, and, and the NDP pushed the envelope and good for them. Sadly though, you know, other than when Jack Layton was the leader of that party, I just don't see this being the, the be-all and end-all that pushes them across the line. And you, we can have a whole conversation about the party system in this country and how it, it affects each and every party and their ability to ever form, you know, the opposition, let alone government. Um, I think it might win a few more votes for the NDP, but the way our system is set up, I just don't see it winning them enough seats mm-hmm. to really make a big jump forward. But, I think it does speak to how important the NDP has been, especially in this parliament, for pushing that agenda forward, because without them, it doesn't happen. Absolutely. Joina, last word on this topic goes to you. Well, a few things, uh, if you don't mind. The first is, I, I do think this is an easy win for the Liberals to spin. As to the NDP, I think it does put them in the position of not having to continue to support the confidence and supply agreement because the rollout has not taken place fully. Um, and they don't want to be in a situation where they withdraw support uh, from the Liberal government, uh, you know, pursue a, a motion for non-confidence and trigger an election before that rollout has fully happened. So I think it does put ND- the NDP in a position where if they want to see this come to fruition, by 2025, they have got to stay the course. I'd be very interested to see how the PC party handles this, uh, because even if someone, a potential voter, did not go in voting for dental care, and if they get a taste of it, I suspect they'd be very hesitant to see it go. So it'd be very interesting to see how the PC is known for, you know, belt tightening and and not wanting to spend oodles of money. That's kind of a gross oversimplica- oversimplification of their thinking, you know, smaller government and not being all, all that involved. I'd be very interested to see how they actually spin the the this 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 latest addition to um, our healthcare system 
in the lead up to the next election. Uh, the one last thing I'll say about this, and we, I, I had intended to bring it up during our discussion around the gaps, and I think it's an important thing to note, is that I don't think a lot of indigenous or remote communities will benefit from this, this expansion to dental care. Why? Because the, the services simply don't exist. And I think that's a huge gap in that we've talked about how there's a shortage of doctors and medical professionals in many indigenous communities and rural communities across Canada, and you can't conjure more dentists. And you can't Absolutely. conjure more orthodontists and things like that. So there is also that bigger question that needs to be asked. Well, if you're going to roll out this program, do you actually have the manpower to back it up? And if you don't, what does that mean for rural Canadians? What does that mean for Indigenous can Canadians? Because more money isn't always the answer if you don't have the staff to back it up. And Joita, this is why you're a pro, because you perfectly teased into the next topic, because coming up after the break, we focus in on the Indigenous communities and specifically around the new bill to create clean water standards within Indigenous communities. You're watching the Now News panel on AMI-tv. Welcome back to the Now News panel on AMI. I'm Alex Smyce. I'm joined by Juwita Gupta and Mike Ross. Let's address our next topic. Indigenous Services Minister Patty Haju had tabled legislation to improve water quality in First Nations communities. The bill applies to source water, drinking water, wastewater, and infrastructure. The bill would also create a new First Nations-led water commission. Kawasa's First Nation Chief, Erica Bowden, sees this policy as progress. It is a start, a beautiful start for all of us to work together with the covenant of treaty, our inherent rights as Indigenous people and all people who inhabit these lands to work together for the clean, cleanest, the safest water that all of us could drink. And Minister Haidu discusses how this policy could transform decision-making. The bureaucracy itself um, is designed around control and that if we truly want to uh, work with First Nations to co-develop or to approach co-development, that we have to challenge all of our assumptions as ministers, as civil servants, as bureaucracy, about the secrecy of development, about how we share information, how we share draft legislation, and how we do so in a way that respects parliamentary privilege. So, Joita, I'm going to start with you on this one, because this government has been in power for over eight years now, and this was something that has been talked about throughout their uh, administration. So how does the delay of the work to finally get to this point influence how you receive the news that they're put, uh, putting forth this bill? Well, I do receive it with a degree of skepticism, precisely because it has taken so long. It's worth remembering that we've gotten to this place as a result of a lawsuit in 2013. And so it's not just this government, but its predecessor that failed to take action in a timely fashion. Meanwhile, we've got First Nations communities with boiled water advisories, some of them going back as far as 28 years of not having potable water in people's homes. So it's a shocking situation. And what also adds to my deep sense of dissatisfaction is that 
while everything sounds really good on paper, let's have a water commission and we'll have plans to share water resources and we'll make sure funding is equitable with non-Indigenous communities. Uh, and, oh, of course, we want to co-develop. That means we want to consult with Indigenous people. We have, I mean, all of that sounds great on paper, but we have, as far as I can tell, very little information about what any of that is actually going to look like. And so mm -hmm. you do have, even there, a clamor of discontent from many Indigenous communities who say, hang on a second, we didn't even know this was coming. So this is just more of the same, a colonial practice, which is high-handed, which isn't actually taking us into consideration. And yet you've got others, as you heard in the clip off the top there, where they're saying this is a good step forward. So you don't really have unanimity. Uh, and yes, it will require some degree of not just, you know, high-level negotiation at the level of the federal government, for example, and uh, you know, national First Nations communities, it will require grassroots engagement, community level engagement, but with very little information about what that's actually going to look like. I can't really say that I'm overly exuberant about it at this point in time, bearing, of course, in mind that I'm not Indigenous, and frankly, none of us are. But it has been eight years in the coming, and some would argue it's taken quite a bit longer than that, because you know, this is something we've been talking about for decades, the fact that Indigenous communities don't have clean drinking water. Infrastructure is a huge problem, just don't have the capacity to treat water adequately either. Absolutely. And, and you laid out, it's the lack of tangibility, the lack of real policy changes that have been released so far that can really point to, okay, this is what it, this plan, this program, uh, this bill is actually going to look like once it's being, like, put into place. Mike, what about you? Like, how does like the delays and, and kind of some of the points that we need to point out kind of damper your, your thoughts on what the potential of this bill could mean? Well, let me start by asking Julia. Julia, are you saying that there are still uh, boil water advisories happening in Canada? Because you know there are. I remember Justin, <laughs> I remember Justin Trudeau saying that those were going to be done in five years. Yeah, that, well. that was supposed to be ancient history by now. No, Julia is absolutely right. When I listened to that clip, Alex, that you just played of Minister Haidu speaking, all I heard was, and, and I'm, I'm going into my uh, Charlie Brown peanuts days, was Charlie Brown's teacher. Wonk, 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 wonk. <laughs> buzzword after buzzword, bureaucracy, respect, uh, you know, parliamentary privilege. To the average Canadian out there, what does that clip even mean? I promise you, you can play that clip again right now, and you will not be able to tell me what that means, as you said, Alex, tangibly. What, mm -hmm. what is actually being said there? Nothing. And what has actually been done, even in the eight years that this government's been in power? Very little. I'm not saying they've done nothing, but they've done very little. They certainly haven't met their promises from 2015. So, again... Mike Ross, skeptic, wearing the hat. Uh, it's a little tighter on this one because I'm just so frustrated that after the government campaigned heavily on this and sold this as a priority and has for eight years, that once again, it just feels like we're back at the starting blocks again and preparing for another marathon. And, and I just wonder, are we ever going to see the finish line on this, you know, in our lifetimes, because it certainly feels like it's just a can that gets kicked down the road time and time again.
Yeah, and, and uh, to uh, clarify a point you you made, Mike, uh, the government has uh, worked to remove uh, boil water advisories, I think over 150-some-odd uh, uh, indigenous communities and remote communities, but there are still dozens that have boil water advisories in place. So despite the fact that they've been working on this for, for years, they have tackled some of the issues in some of these communities, but not all of them. They're still in place. I, I wonder for you, Joita, it's like, is the what kind of surprised me as I started looking into this as well, and you you kind of touched on it. It's like there, this wasn't spurred into action just uh, on on a whim. Like there there were many steps, mm -hmm. and the fact that there was a a PC uh, initiated uh, bill from the Harper government on uh, water uh, policy, and yet it it was vastly uh, ineffective. So do you think that because of these issues we've laid out that we've talked about? There's a, that's kind of the reason why more people aren't really talking about this bill or policy because we just have so little faith that the tangible change is actually going to come as a result of this. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily the reason why people aren't talking about it. I think the reason people aren't talking about it is because we um, have a lot else to talk about. For one thing, mm -hmm. in, in a charitable view of the situation, I mean, there was a global pandemic, which I think sucked up a lot of the oxygen. Uh, but I think if you were to ask some contenders, uh, scholars and activists within the indigenous communities, they would just turn around and call a spade a spade and say that it's just not been a political priority. It's one thing to say something is a political priority. It's another thing they would argue that uh, you make it a political priority by adequately funding it and meeting your targets. Uh, and whether it's because of a failure in bureaucracy to actually get the thing done, which is what we talked about in our earlier segment, or if there's something a little more insidious going on there, um, given the the nature of our relationship with many indigenous communities, it's hard for me to say, and I don't want to venture into speculation, but mm -hmm. there's probably a plethora of reasons why people aren't talking about this. But I will push back slightly. And I would say, Alex, that the reason we've achieved so little progress is probably the least likely reason why this has not been more top of mind in terms of political chatter or public discourse for that matter. Fair enough. And, and so, Mike, I'm going to give you last word on this topic. Well, just speaking to what Joey was just talking about, I think in in way too many instances for some Canadians, um, you know, they think of Indigenous communities through a lens of of tropes and through a lens of stereotypes, and it's easy to dismiss um, Indigenous communities for some. It's it's easy to dismiss the vulnerable, right? When you wake up every morning and turn on that tap. And you have water that you can drink right from that tap. You can jump in your shower. You can cook with that water. You're not impacted. You don't live it. You don't experience mm -hmm. it. And when the government consistently just keeps kicking that can down the road, why would it be a, a, a really hot button topic for me, one that I'm interested in, if I see that the government isn't actually making it? A, an absolute top priority. And that's why, Alex, when, when you know you pointed out, and rightfully so, as I said, the government, I wasn't saying the government hasn't done anything on things mm -hmm. like the boil water advisory, but it is clear that they promised 
to have them all done. And they yeah. campaigned hard on that. And they did not deliver. I'm glad they haven't abandoned it. But if they can't deliver and and and, and they don't deliver, then why would why would some Canadian why why should we be surprised that some Canadians don't have that top of mind uh, as something that that they're going to be concerned about? Because it's not necessarily things that the government's been able to deliver on, as Juita said, for decades. Absolutely. Thank you both for for uh, touching on this topic with me. Uh, that's we will move on to our final topic after the break, because coming up, the U.N. Climate Summit saw an agreement between 200 countries to transition away from fossil fuels. But how did this deal change your perception around the summit overall? We'll get into it after the break. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to the Now News panel on AMI. I'm Alex Smythe, and I'm joined by Juita Gupta and Mike Ross as we explore our final topic for the day. The UN Climate Summit in Dubai wrapped up with some consensus. Nearly 200 countries agreed to transition away from fossil fuels in energy systems. The agreement calls for the tripling of renewable energy capacity. It also calls for a doubling of the annual rate of energy efficiency by 2030. There are criticisms to this agreement, however. Environment Minister Stephen Gilbo would have liked to have stronger language around the use of coal. Advocates say that forms of energy like natural gas appear to be exempt from this agreement. And other advocates feel that there is not enough language about wealthier countries financing this transition overall. So, Mike, I'm going to start with you on this one. How does this deal change your perception on these uh, conferences and this summit? I feel like when you guys were planning the news panel topics for the week, you guys had an inkling I was going to be here because <laughs> cynic and skeptic Mike Ross is going to be here Friday. Let's hit him with all of these great topics. Um, I'm going to I'm going to just basically repeat what I've said previously in the hour. My perception of this is ho hum. Another agreement that looks great on paper, that sounds great in news clips, but. I mean, this is another one that, that we keep kicking down the road that you keep saying the right things and try to do the right things, um, but there are just way too many countries that either choose not to or just can't. They, 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 economically, they cannot make those changes, whether they can't afford to make the changes or they can't afford to not make changes. Um, so I, I think it's it's... It's interesting policy. It's, it, it certainly sounds great. But how effective we can actually be at making that kind of a change, especially with the energy efficiency, in six years? I mean, we're, we're only a couple of weeks away from 2024. So six years, that's a heck of a turnaround. And I don't know how you make these, these changes and, and let's face it, there's a lot of infrastructure change that would have to be involved here. 
How do you make that in the next six years? While at the same time, living in climates where, like us, where cold can be an issue and home heating is very important. Mm -hmm. I, I just, I, I, I take it with a grain of salt. Joita, I know you have to get out of here at 10 o'clock, so I'm going to give you the platform to uh, take this question any way you would like and, and explore this topic. It's all yours. Why well, I would take it with a shaker's worth of salt. Uh, look, on paper, there's a couple of really good features of this policy, not least of which is um, that they are talking at least now for the first time, there's a genuine acknowledgement that fossil fuels is a problem, uh, which wasn't the case, I think, in previous uh, summits and pre they, they could not actually get consensus around the issue that fossil fuels are a problem. The language, which is about transitioning away from, is lukewarm at best uh, because it is riddled with loopholes, um, say around natural gas being one of them. And yet, incremental though it is, it is still progress. The problem is it is too little too late. Um, we have a goal to try and reduce the temperature by 1.5 degrees Celsius uh, by 2050, but it doesn't seem like we're anywhere near achieving that target because the political will just isn't there. Mike makes a really good point about just the scope of infrastructure change that needs to take place to allow countries, especially those with colder climates, to make the transition towards more energy effective options. Uh, but, you know, it's not likely to happen in the blink of an eye. Meanwhile, next year, 2024, is slated to be the hottest on record. So I feel like it's been a lot of talk um, and very little to show for it. I know the scientific community is appalled because, you know, 130 out of 198 countries had talked, had backed the stronger language, which is phase out. Mm -hmm as opposed to transition away. But here we are, we're stuck with transition away. The The thing is, and I, I sort of talked about this last week, is what do you do? You kind of need to have the oil-producing states at the table. You can't just go off and do your own thing and leave them out of the conversation. Uh, you have Danielle Smith, uh, the Premier of Alberta, saying this is a great policy, and Danielle Smith is uh, not exactly a champion for the, for the environment, uh, and yet she's happy about it. So I think it's one of those things that has made everybody across the board overall pretty unhappy. Uh, and it comes with a great sense of urgency around the evolving climate. We see more extreme weather. And as I said, next year is to be the hottest on 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 um, on record. So, you know, is it progress? Sure, it's progress. Whether it actually whether there's actually implementation to back up the lukewarm language, that's a whole other kettle of fish. But we are really we need to make more haste and we're clearly dawdling when time is running out yeah absolutely and, and well i think i think politically if you upset as many people with policy as you do make happy then maybe you're on the right track in this case mm -hmm. though i think there's just way more indifference and 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 people who just don't believe it can actually happen uh, as opposed to people supporting or or being uh, against it. So I think the indifference yeah. is really, in many instances, what stops these things from actually moving forward. And it costs people in, in their pocketbook. And who wants to spend on it? A lot of people don't. Absolutely. Well, thank you both very much for chiming in on this topic and the others. That's all the time we have for the Now News panel. So I want to thank you, Joita Gupta, 
Have yourself a wonderful weekend, and I'll chat to you Thank in you, 2024. Alex. Thank you, Alex. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. That was Jarita Gupta, the host of The Pulse on AMI-audio. And Mike Ross, thank you so much for chiming in on the news panel as well. But you don't get to go anywhere because I'm going to be talking to you later on in the show. Uh, but coming up after the break, I got the regional news update. And Brock Richardson stops by for a sport chat. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe filling in for Dave, airing on AMI-tv and in audio on AMIplus.ca. It is Friday, December 15th, 2023. Coming up on the second hour of the show, the Salvation Army is providing assistance to Canadians in need this Christmas. Glenn Van Gerlich from the Ontario Division tells you all about their charitable programs. Plus, Canada Reads announced their long list earlier this week. Kara McKay from the Centre for Equitable Library Access gives you the scoop. All that and more set to come on the second hour of the show, but we begin with the regional news update. We begin in British Columbia, where there has been a steep rise in the deaths of people experiencing homelessness. Nicole Reese has the numbers. The coroner service says the deaths of 342 people experiencing homelessness were reported last year. That's an increase of almost 140 over the past two years. The coroner service says there were 1,464 deaths of people who were homeless in BC in the period between 2015 and 2022, averaging about 183 deaths per year. Most of those deaths were in Vancouver, Victoria and Surrey, BC, and 82% of them were male. The service says as toxic drug supply has significantly contributed to the increase, with more than eight of every ten deaths in the review classified as accidental. Nicole Reese, the Canadian Press. Over to the prairies now, where the truck driver who caused a deadly humble Broncos bus crash in Saskatchewan has had his application for permanent residency denied. He was fighting deportation back to India. Jaskarat Singh Sidhu was sentenced to eight years for causing the 2018 crash that killed 16 people and injured 13 others. Chris Joseph, whose son Jackson died in the accident, is relieved. We think it's the right decision. It's been five years of pain, well, probably four, almost five years of pain for our family and many other families for Mr. Sidhu looking out for number one, while he says that he has the utmost regard for victims' families. Over to the Atlantic now, the daughter of a wrongfully convicted Nova Scotia man says even in death, her father is being denied justice. Amanda Hunkel says her family was deeply frustrated when they learned last month that the police oversight body has stopped its three-year probe to determine whether RCMP officers broke the law when they destroyed evidence in Glenn Assoon's murder case. Dad has been once again railroaded like, like he's been every step of the way. You know, at the end of the day, he deserves justice and he, he never got to experience that before he left this world. He never truly, truly got to experience that. 
Ron McDonald, head of Nova Scotia's police watchdog agency, says his organization had to drop the case because investigators were too busy. As much as the investigators who had been assigned to this wanted to continue, it became obvious we couldn't continue. And uh, for those reasons, we, we indicated that to Nova Scotia. That's it for the regional news update. It's now time for a sports chat with Brock Richardson. Brock, we are talking all about, I'm making you commissioner of the league today, it seems, and you have some proposed rule changes you'd like to see the NHL incorporate. Yes, I have two of them, and I will do my best to describe both of them. For these, for the first one, I will use, just for argument's sake, uh, the Montreal Canadiens and the Toronto Maple Leafs as if they were playing each other. So the first rule, what I would suggest is you should still receive a power play on a delayed penalty call uh, if you score before the penalty is called. So what I'm referring to is... Let's say that Montreal is getting a penalty and Toronto uh, theoretically still has possession of the puck. They Toronto would still be able to play and still be able to score. Once Montreal touches the puck, then the play gets blown dead. Then the power play gets awarded. If Toronto does score on this delay while waiting for the penalty to be uh, awarded, then they would not receive a power play. I think, Alex, this negates the whole infraction. If you score on the delayed penalty then the infraction is for argument's sake not being uh penalized and so for me i think that yes in in this case toronto should still receive a power play uh because they scored before the penalty was actually awarded your thoughts mm. on this one before we move on to rule change number two yeah, so I think it's an interesting take, right? Because anytime there is a delayed penalty in hockey, the team who is going to go on the power play, you always see them pull their goalie because they know as soon as the other team touches the puck, well, then the penalty is going to be called. I'm not necessarily opposed to this being a uh, being a rule change in the NHL because I agree, Brock, there's, there's some of it. They're just continuing to play until the whistle is blown and then the penalty should be assessed. Whether or not a goal takes place during that uh, instance should not really have any bearing on the situation because, you know, if, if let's say, you know, the team that's going to be going on the power play, if they accidentally score in their own empty net, well, that goal still counts, then they still go on the on the power play. Uh, so just because you score on the, on the opposing side that's going to get penalized, yeah, I don't think that should necessarily negate a goal. So I, I'm with you on this uh, this uh, rule change. And box. also, I just want to put this out there, too. The the non-offending team, so the team that is not receiving the power play, they make the choice to pull their goalie to get the extra attacker. It's not as if the league says, once you get a delayed penalty, you must pull your goalie. Now, more often than not, teams do pull their goalie but mm -hmm. this is the team decision to make this so it's their decision and their risk if as you point out if it goes off of their own skate and down into the empty net it it counts so for me i i think i would like to see this rule um changed uh, and the second one that i have is when the game is tied after 60 minutes of hockey and we go into a five-minute uh, three-on-three overtime, which I believe should be ten minutes as opposed to five, but that's not what I'm trying to change here. But 
I believe that when you have three rounds of players, so you have three skaters that, that go one-on-one -on -one against the goalie in the shootout, once you get through those three players and we still are tied in the shootout, then you cannot use one of those three players that you've already previously used. My argument is why not let uh, uh, the coach decide in the tiebreaker of the shootout, hey, I'm going to use, you know, Connor McDavid one more time in in the shootout because it's it's sudden death. I think that should be something that's added. I would not go as far as to say in the international rules where you could literally use the same guy, you know, uh, five, six times if you so choose. I think that you should be able to pick your three guys, let them shoot, and then if you want to go back to one of those three guys one more time when it's tied, that is what should be uh, allowed for argument's sake. What's your take on this uh, second rule change? You know, I'm actually in favor, as, as you mentioned, you're, you're, you don't want to go full international. I'm fine with it. You know, we see it in uh, soccer or, or, or European football, as, if you want to uh, use that term, uh, that, you know, whenever there's a penalty or, or a, uh, like a, a, a free shot on net, they get to choose and elect who they want on their team to take that shot. I think that should be the case because right now, if you're taken down if, if uh, on a breakaway and you get a penalty shot in, during the NHL game, you the player who got taken down has to take the the penalty. I, I think, you know what, it's still deemed a penalty. You should be allowed, just like you are on a power play, to set who's going to be on the ice during that situation. You know, it, it should be that advantage to that team. Um, because otherwise, too, you know, it's like, players may sometimes choose well if if i got common connor mcdavid coming down the ice and if i try to trip him up it's going to be a, a a penalty shot maybe i'm not going to do that but if it's a like fourth line grinder okay i'm going to take that chance you know what i mean brock so yeah I, I i would like to see it opened up that any penalty shot any shootout you're allowed to set any player you want out there if you really i i, I think the first three you have to have different players but after that if you want to use Connor McDavid six times in a row, I'm happy to do it. So I'm willing to go even further than you in, in terms of your real change. I like it and I want to improve on it, Brock. Yeah, that, that's fair. And I, and I, and I do respect that, um, that, that rule change. I mean, I remember, uh, uh, many years ago in the, um, in the international world junior hockey championship, they used, uh, Connor McDavid in 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 a shootout like multiple times and i and i mm -hmm. think you know for canada that's obviously a benefit but uh for me i understand why you would say that i just think you know three times use them once more and then uh and then and then move on to somebody else the problem is now is when you get into the seven or eight round shootout now you are getting into as the rule currently stands you are getting into the fourth line guy who probably doesn't very often get a one-on-one -on -one goal uh, chance with the goalies. So that's why I'm saying let's spread the love out a little bit and allow them to use more of their top line guys. Because to your other point, you get to decide which power play you're going to start with, whether it's line one or two, you get to decide. So why shouldn't you decide in this instance as well? So yeah, that's my uh, proposed uh, rule changes for the, NHL and they usually look at rule changes uh, when uh, the Winter Olympics uh, are finished. Uh, that's usually when they look at rule changes. So we'll see uh, what happens moving forward. But I think some of the commentators are in favor, especially with 
rule uh, number one with the power play because that's part of the reason I brought this forward. It's because I was watching multiple games this week and some commentators were like, you know what, this should be a rule. So I wanted to kick it around here on, on my morning hit for a little while. Well, and I also think too, like looking at the two different uh, uh, proposed changes that you brought forward, what is like what is the goal of um, the situations, so to speak? So with your first rule change around, uh, you know, like dis disallowing or, or nulling a penalty or penalty or power play, if the, the team that's going to go on the power play gets a goal before the penalty is actually called, the, the NHL wants more offense. They, they want more excitement. They want higher scoring games. So it plays in their favor in that regard. And then on the other rule change, you know, it, about shootouts, it's all about, they instituted the shootout to make the game shorter and make it have a defined end be, uh, beyond just, oh, playing overtime until someone wins because it could theoretically go on for forever. So they made those rule changes. They brought in the shootout to tighten the, the length of games. So it, it's gonna result potentially in quicker shootouts and quicker ends to the game. That's another reason why the league would potentially be in favor of it because it's bringing an end to the game, regardless of who's actually taking a shot. If it means the game's finished, great. You, uh, mission accomplished. You got the result you wanted out of the, the situation by putting in the shootout in the first place. You can move on to the next game. And I actually think, and this was to my very first point, I actually think that if they extended the overtime to 10 minutes, and I know the NHL is going to say, yeah, but that lengthens the time by double. Well, I would be a betting man, Alex, and say vast majority of the games are probably going to be over before that 10-minute uh, time elapses. If we still need to go to a shootout after the 10 minutes, I'm good with it. I just think the NHL should also look at, you know, let's extend this a little bit because I want the game to be solved on a quote-unquote natural or more appropriate way that the game would normally end the game doesn't end in the playoffs in a uh shootout so i just think we should try to solve it in as much of the normal framework of the hockey game than moving into a shootout but if after 10 minutes we we still need an uh shootout i'm fine with that during the regular season that's fair because uh, i will say though having been on the other side of it and literally went to a boston ottawa playoff game that ended at midnight that started at seven it could be a bit quicker it doesn't need to go into <laughs> double or triple yeah, over time no. to solve a game there's other ways to do it but brock thank you so much for bringing this topic forward have yourself a wonderful weekend and i will see you back in 2024 so have a great break you as well Okay, that was Brock Richardson at the Sport Desk. And coming up after the break, are you looking for something to watch this weekend on Netflix? Well, Laura Bain had you covered in her entertainment report. You're watching Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe. Volatile, wacky, unseasonable, all have been used to describe December in Canada when it comes to the weather. 
We'll get more details on what to expect and what's been going on with the weather report with Mike Ross. Yeah, Mike, no, Alex, your focus it's on this. So tell us more. Like I've been trying to wrap my hand around it, covering the weather. Now you're trying to wrap your head around this as well. Well, I mean, I'm taking a peek out my window this morning. It's sunny, and I checked my weather app, and by like 2 or 3 o'clock today, it's going to hit 11 or 12 degrees. So I'm thinking of texting the golf pro at my local golf course and saying, hey, can we play 9 today? You know, the ground will be thawed, and we won't wear spikes, and we'll stay, you know, keep the carts on the cart paths. Why not? It's a beautiful day out there. And let's face it. There have been rather unseasonable days over the past uh, few weeks, and that is likely going to be the trend here over the next couple of weeks leading through the holiday season and into January. And basically, when you think of weather in Canada in December, for me, 25, 30, 40 years ago, it was right, right now we'd be on an outdoor pond somewhere playing hockey. Ice was made, boards were up, and you were playing and rolling around in the snow. Right now, though, we've got the 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 jet stream, which normally would be uh, keeping cold air sort of steady where we are. Uh, it's actually now moving warm air from the Pacific in and across North America, which is not usual. And so you're getting those warmer temperatures, not just on the West Coast, but right across the country. And that is going to be happening persistently over the next few weeks. They're talking about high-pressure ridges paired with very little, they're calling it combative or extreme temperature contrast. So you have these systems that normally come in from the Arctic and blow across the country. They're being pushed back by this jet stream making its way across the country. And we're experiencing another El Nino, which we last experienced 2015 into 2016, which sort of pushes hard on that Arctic weather and that Arctic cold and keeps it north of us. And so you're going to see that uh, you're going to have not only warmer temperatures and therefore less snow, any snow that does show up isn't going to stick around very long. It's going to be melting and uh, be interesting to see how that sort of affects water levels. A lot of parts of the country, Manitoba, for example, has uh, been talking about December uh, droughts and it's something that they're not used to seeing there. So uh, we'll see if some of the snow melt coming a little bit earlier than usual helps in those situations. But that's what's happening. We've got a, a very strong jet stream that's keeping that Arctic air, which usually starts over in Siberia, moves its way into North America, being pushed back, and that warm air off the Pacific is blowing across the country. And therefore, going to likely be a greener Christmas in many, many parts of the country. Not news I want to hear, Mike, but thank you regardless for covering this. Have yourself a wonderful day, and thank you for filling in as co-host today. My pleasure. Thank you, Alex. That was Mike Ross with the Weather Report. And in a minute, we will hear from Laura Bain on the entertainment file. But first, the saga between Beeper Mini and Apple continues. Here's Tech Trends with reporter Mike Dubusky. 
Last week, Beeper Mini debuted. Android users can download this app and it turns them from a green bubble into a blue bubble. Co-founder Eric Mijakovsky says blue texts represent Apple's proprietary texting technology, iMessage. That adds certain security features like encryption and quality of life features like texting indicators, things you wouldn't get with a normal Android to iPhone text conversation. All it required was a phone number, but the app wasn't available for long. Three days after we launched, Apple uh, attempted to block Beeper Mini. Now Beeper Mini is back up and running. Android users can still message iPhones with blue texts, but they need an Apple ID to do it. Mijakovsky says the app is still a work in progress. We're still working on the full fix, um, but fingers crossed. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. And now for the entertainment report, because Laura Bain, you are plugged in you know what's coming up this weekend new releases on netflix because i'm going to be enjoying a lot of time on the couch over the next few days so what should i be on the lookout for yeah exactly i was thinking about yourself and some people who are starting to get some time off this time of year and maybe looking for some things to watch so i'm going to highlight a few titles now all of these titles include audio description because i wouldn't bring you any titles that didn't now, the first thing I want to highlight is a movie called May-December, starring Natalie Portman, Julianne Moore, and Charles Melton of Riverdale fame. Uh, so this is sort of loosely inspired by a true story about a long-married couple with a scandalous beginning where she was 36 and he was 13 when they first got together. Uh, so this couple feels the pressure when a TV star arrives to research their tabloid making beginnings for a role. This jumped out at me, I think, because we talked about the Golden Globes at the beginning of the week. And this is nominated for Best Most Motion Picture in the Musical or Comedy category. Although it is nominated in the comedy category it is rated r and it deals with some heavier themes so folks might want to keep that in mind now something that's not likely to deal with heavier themes is christmas as usual uh, so this is a christmas rom-com i couldn't help myself i had to get one in there it's a norwegian film about a Norwegian woman who brings her Indian boyfriend home for Christmas and cultures clash and, of course, hilarity ensues. Uh, so this is a comedy that's also based on a true story, and it's currently number seven on Netflix global top 10 list with about 10 million hours viewed. And I mentioned that just as a little bit of a throwback to another story earlier in the week. I'm sure there's lots of people in the industry out there excited that we can look and see exactly how many hours of viewing time things are racking up for those residuals. Uh, I want to mention World War II from the front lines. This is a six-episode limited series using colorized archival footage. Um, so it features epic battles and everyday moments from all sides captured in a moving docu-series. It's currently number four in TV shows in Canada today on Netflix. I feel like it's something I might sort of have to emotionally prepare myself a bit to watch, but it seems like something that both of my grandfathers would have been really into. And I'm sort of picturing, you know, all sorts of grandfathers tuning into this over the holidays and getting cozy in their armchairs. So uh, that's kind of a nice thought. Now, the last thing I want to mention is Chicken Run Dawn of the Nugget. So this is the long awaited sequel to the film Chicken Run, which is a stop motion animated film from the year 2000 and is actually the highest grossing stop motion animated 
animated film of all time. I haven't seen the original, but I mentioned it this morning to my partner and he got really excited. It's definitely a cult classic. It's set mm-hmm. in the countryside of Yorkshire and the original featured the voice of Mel Gibson. Uh, it's about a determined hen and rooster that lead their feathered friends into a great escape from the farm. And the sequel explores similar themes of poultry escaping into the human world. I did watch the trailer and it just looks like a lot of fun and something that you could watch with the whole family. It's got a rating of PG. So uh, first of all, Alex, I want to know, have you seen the film Chicken Run? Oh, I, Laura, I remember watching Chicken Run when it came out. I remember watching it like a few years later when it uh, came out. And I still remember being like emotionally, like somewhat like sensitive afterwards. Like I, I, I think okay. I was close to shedding a tear or two at one point. Just was like it hit me some way shape or form i loved it i also loved the animation style because it's the same style of the classic british stop motion of wallace and gromit which always has that same kind of look and feel to it I, it always resonated to me so i'm actually quite excited when when you sent this email i had no idea it was coming out let alone it was coming out soon i was like oh, i may need to add this to my list i, I may have to sit down uh, this uh, these holidays and, and check it out and see how it is so Yes, definitely. I've I've seen it. I loved it. It is certainly worth a watch, especially since you haven't seen it. I may have let out a little little gasp of, of surprise, Laura. Definitely worth a watch. Yeah, and given my partner's excited uh, excitement this morning <laughs> over it, I think it's probably on our near in our near future. Um, and I'm looking forward to that. Any other uh, cult classics you want to throw a little love to out there? Yeah, so I will stay with the holiday uh, themes. One I really love and I'm probably going to watch is Gremlins. The the first one and the second one, um, I, I enjoy the second one as well. But the first one has ties to the holiday season and Christmas time. So what better way to to kick off, you know, festivities and watching green little monsters go around and, and terrorize, but also Carol in, in uh, some suburban neighborhoods. It, it's so fun. It's so quirky. Part of it is very schlocky and low budget. It's very much an 80s horror action comedy movie. And whenever those three different genres kind of like blend for me, I'm hooked. I'm in. And so that's definitely one of my favorite cult classic films. What about you, Laura? Oh, yeah. And Gremlins is a fun one. I haven't seen that in a long time. Well, I want to throw a little love to the 2001 film Hedwig and the Angry Inch. I don't know if you know that one. It's a, I was trying to think, what can I say about this one on radio? That's safe for radio. It is a (laughs) film about a gay teenager from East Germany who, let's say, does a lot for love and to come to the United States. Um, And this came out, as I said, in 2001. I was in high school then. I remember watching it at, um, you know, a small independent theater here. And, you know, it was dealing with a lot of themes that mainstream media wasn't dealing with. And it also has an amazing soundtrack. I haven't seen it in about a decade, so I can't say whether it holds up. But, you know, mm-hmm. with that caveat aside, it's one I would definitely recommend. Well, Laura, thank you so much for bringing this topic forward. I'm I'm off for the break after today, so I will bid you a happy holidays and I'll chat with you in 2024. Yeah, enjoy your time off. Thank you very much. That was Laura Bain with the Entertainment Report based in Halifax. Coming up after the break, we learn a bit about all the work 
being done with the Salvation Army. You're watching Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and streaming on audio in, at AMIplus.ca. I'm Alex Smythe in for Dave. The Salvation Army's Christmas kettles for many signal that the holidays are just around the corner. They offer hope and support for in 400 Canadian communities in 132 countries worldwide by providing practical assistance, shelter, and rehabilitation for those in need. From food hampers to helping put toys and clothes under the tree, the Salvation Army is providing practical assistance for those in need this Christmas season. I'm joined by Glenn Van Gulick to delve into the ways in which Salvation Army is making meaningful contributions during the holiday season. And Glenn is the Divisional Secretary for PR at the Salvation Army's Ontario Division. Hello, Glenn, how are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having us, Alex. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you for, for joining us. So the Salvation Army's programs serve th uh, 3.9 million meals to families and Canadians on fixed incomes, such as seniors and yeah. folks with disabilities. So how have you observed the increased demand for uh, during this year as maybe compared to years in the past? Well, you've captured it perfectly. We've seen a dramatic increase in those that are coming to the Salvation Army for services. Um, serving 3.9 million meals, that, that's a representation of 2.7 million Canadians that walk through our doors, uh, coming to us uh, midway through a month, trying to figure out how they're getting to the end of that month, uh, especially with such economic challenges these days, the cost of inflation going up and, and groceries, uh, and, and people are really, really struggling. We're actually seeing over 30% of those that are coming to us are new, many of which who, who would have donated to the Salvation Army's uh, iconic Christmas kettle campaign as you opened up with. So many people struggling, uh, as, as we can imagine, and, and we're seeing on our front lines. And the Salvation Army has always been there, and we will continue to be there for Canadians uh, every day, making sure that they, they know that there's uh, the Salvation Army is there to support them and help them in their time of need. Yeah. And so speaking of the kettlebell program and then also the food hamper uh, initiative, yeah. what are those programs providing for folks? Well, you're right. The Christmas kettle campaign, iconic, synonymous with Christmas, the red kettles out at the malls and the grocery stores. You'll see them at uh, Walmarts and LCBOs here in Ontario, certainly. But right across the country, over 2,000 red kettles are out there with volunteers manning those kettles. Uh, encouraging people to donate and support the work of the Salvation Army. And every dollar that's placed in those kettles stays local in the community in which it's given. So you can know that your donation is, is helping your neighbours and supporting those in your community with the needs that they have. Uh, that campaign runs uh, right through till the 24th of, of December, uh, right till the end of the season. And uh, it, it actually funds programs all year long, not just at Christmas time. But you've also highlighted the hamper program that so many of our Salvation Army locations have, which is uh, synonymous again with Christmas, a Christmas hamper program where all the trimmings for a Christmas dinner, as well as so many extras, especially for families with children, perhaps, making sure there's some treats in there or toys uh, made available so that children and families can celebrate Christmas and know that they're being supported. There's something under the tree for the kids. 
uh, and they can enjoy that time of the season without that weight of, of uncertainty on their shoulders, they can, uh, they can rest assured that they've got a support system. Um, the Salvation Army is there and, and their neighbours, quite frankly, their neighbours are the ones that are helping them uh, indirectly and directly to, uh, to make sure that their holidays are bright. And so how can folks access these programs during the holiday season? Yeah, a great question. SalvationArmy.ca, our, our website, is the best place that you can go. And on that website, you'll find an area that simply says in your community or locations. And you can find the local Salvation Army near you, closest to you, and reach out and connect with them. And they'll be able to walk you through all the steps and, and uh, all the services that are available in your local community and connect you to the right people. Oftentimes, the Salvation Army is working with great partners in community as well. And so where where the Salvation Army wraps around supports, we're part of a network of supports in community, making sure that every, every individual and every family has the things that they need in order to make sure that they're successful. So uh, quite often that might be an emergency need for food or clothing or, um, or some support with getting through to the end of the month. Uh, but it's also addressing some of the root causes of those challenges and, and identifying ways that we can support an individual to perhaps find a job that, uh, that they've been struggling with or, or go back to school with some education programs. Uh, maybe it's helping with some, uh, some bills that have been piling up and being able to support them through that time, making sure that they can get back on their feet and, uh, and be successful uh, in the future. So the Salvation Army has been there for a very long time, will continue to be there for, for those that come to us through our doors. And, uh, and we'd encourage those that can give to the Salvation Army and support your neighbors. SalvationArmy.ca, make a donation, or you can uh, drop some money in any of those Christmas kettles that you see out these days. And Glenn, before I let you go, I, I, you've, you've mentioned yeah. this already, but I really want to highlight the, the impact uh, that the services that the mm. Salvation Army does and, and the impact it has on the folks who do access their services and are in need of those yeah. services. Well, you make a really great point. I'm glad you've highlighted that. I was, I was actually talking with one of our, our local Salvation Army officers up in Sault Ste. Marie uh, in community and uh, with some seniors and seeing an increase in seniors accessing our programs, specifically around food insecurity. You know, they've dedicated a day where they go out and deliver groceries to seniors and stop and have a have a sit down conversation and laugh a bit and creating that connection with people who otherwise might might find themselves isolated lonely and and needing those supports desperately so you know it's those kinds of programs and services that uh, Canadians when they're putting money in those kettles that's the programs and services that they're supporting to make sure that every individual every family has the supports around them that they need and and the salvation army's there Glenn, thank you so much for your time and, and, and coming on and sharing some of the, the great work the Salvation Army is doing. Really appreciate it, Alex. Listen, Merry Christmas. Have a wonderful holiday season. You as well. That was Glenn Van Gulick. Glenn is the Divisional Secretary for PR at the Salvation Army's Ontario Division. To make a donation, you can go to SalvationArmy.ca, as he mentioned, SalvationArmy.ca. And now let's bring in Ramya Muthan to find out what's coming up on today's edition of Kelly and Ramya. Hello, Ramya. Morning. Happy Friday, Alex. Happy Friday. So, what's coming up on your Friday edition of Now with Day uh, on on Now with Dave Brown? You're you're here on <laughs> on Friday for Now with Dave Brown. What's coming up on Kelly and Ramya? Okay, so we're talking about Google's new features to introduce more control over location data. This is always good in my book, so we're going to talk about that with John Beeler on our app update. Also, the largest contract ever 
signed in North American Pro Sports is uh, finally signed. It was signed last week. We're going to talk more about that and what it is with Brock Richardson on our sports update. And um, there's a new partnership between Dreamscape Media and Mayo Clinic to bring more books to the audio side of the world. So Ryan Hui is going to tell us more about that on the Chatty Bookshelf. Oh, speaking of uh, more audio books, we are, you're teeing up the final segment of the show, Ramya. It's like you're a pro and you do this for a living or something. I don't know. Thank you very much. Uh, I am off next week. So have yourself a wonderful uh, rest of the week and I'll chat with you in 2024. Oh, you too, Alex. Have a good holiday season. Yeah, you as well. That was Ramya Muthan, co-host of Kelly and Ramya. And you can catch the show 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-TV. Coming up after the break, as I mentioned, Canada Reads announced their long list earlier this week, and Karen McKay from the Center for Equitable Library Access gives you the scoop. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-TV. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-TV. I'm Alex Smythe filling in for Dave. The long list for the annual Battle of the Books is finally out. Canda Reads announced their list earlier this week. And Karen McKay from the Center of Equitable Library Access is here with all the details. Good morning, Karen. How are you doing today? I'm great, thanks. Good morning and happy Friday. Happy Friday indeed. So how many books made the Canda Reads long list? The long list this year has 15 books on it, which is a very long, long list. I'm not sure they always do 15, but uh, there's some really great books on the on the list this year. And so are, are all these books available on the as part of the SELA collection? Are some of them are any of them? Well, we have uh, all but two, I believe. We're waiting for two still to to come in. Uh, so folks can certainly get started to on on reading. The shortlist announces in early July or early January, sorry, on January 11th. So uh, so there's still lots of time to pick up the books from the long list and and get a head start on those. Uh, about half the books were published in this year, and the other uh, half were published in the last couple of years. So folks will probably recognize a number of these titles, um, and many of them have been on the list for other awards. So they're really important books to be reading. And as you mentioned, the short list uh, will be announced in January. So when that short list comes out, we will then dive deeper into some of these titles and really highlight them a bit more for folks at home then. Yeah, that will be fun. There will be five on the short list. So it'll be a um, Yeah, you don't have to go through 15 different titles and, and give uh, yeah. your, your great analysis and, and exploration for each of But Yeah, I'll, I'm happy to do the five, yes. Yes, exactly. But we still want to get your your detailed analysis and so we're focusing in on the top sila titles of 2023 because this is like me this is your last segment on the show for 2023 so what are the most uh, uh what are some of the most downloaded titles of 2023 from the sila collection 
So I'll go through them in order of uh, number of downloads. So these are the ones, the first one is the one that our uh, readers have downloaded the most, and it is not surprisingly Spare by the Duke of Sussex, Prince Harry. Uh, it was probably the most anticipated book of 2023. Uh, we talked about it on this show, and we also talked about it uh, in a little more detail on Ramya's uh, audiobook review show. Um, You'll probably remember it had phenomenal media coverage, so there was a, a high demand for people to to want to read this book, and it was sold uh, before its drop date in Spain, which really just sort of added to the the frenzy. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, it became the fastest selling nonfiction book of all time on the date of its release. Uh, it's been translated into fifteen different languages. The audiobook's narrated by Prince Harry, which I think lends a real authenticity to the story. It doesn't hold back. There's lots of uh, juicy tidbits in this in memoir. Actually, a number of critics commented that it offered maybe too many details, which um, if you've read it, you probably feel like you're sort of sitting on the other end of the couch in a therapist's office. It's it's pretty, uh, it's a pretty deep delve into his childhood, the impact of the loss of his mother, the, you know, the whole idea of being raised as the the spare to the their own. Uh, it's a very interesting book. Even if you're not a fan of Prince Harry or the monarchy, I think it's got some really interesting cultural pieces. So uh, if you haven't read it yet, it might be one to pick up over the holidays. And as you say, that was the most downloaded uh, title from the CELA collection this year. The uh, number two slot went to The Whispers, a novel by Ashley O'Dran. What can you tell me about that one? So she's a Canadian author. This is her second title. Her first book called The Push was actually one of my very favorite books of 2020. Uh, and this one, The Whispers, sort of expands on a lot of the themes she explored in The Push. So the story is about a group of neighborhood friends and their families. Uh, there's a real veneer of perfection to these families and particularly these women. And it shattered well, they're all attending a backyard party uh, at the end of the summer one, one year. Uh, one of the key characters loses her cool and literally explodes on her young son. And there's sort of like a collective intake of, of breath. Everybody sort of stops shocked. What happens over the next three days really unravels that veneer of perfection for all of the families. Uh, and it leads to a shocking incident um, involving one of the children. And it's, uh, it's a very interesting inter introspection of um women's relationships, their authenticity, their desire and ambition, ambition um, how motherhood defines women, even if they're not mothers. Ashley Audrain's really sort of put her, her uh, self on the map in terms of being a real talent in women's fiction. And I can't wait to read her, her next book. This is a, a page turner. I read it in about one day, I think, sitting on the dock at the cottage. And uh, it's, I would say it's probably one of my favorites of this year as well. So I highly, highly recommend this book, particularly if you're interested in uh, women's issues. Very good. And in the number three slot, it was Hotline by Dimitri Nasrallah. Yeah, so this is a, uh, an author who came to Canada as a young person. He fled Lebanon with his family in the 1970s during the Civil War when he was just five years old. And he immigrated uh, to Canada by way of Greece and Kuwait, arriving here in the late uh, 1980s and settling in Montreal with his family. So uh, he says that this book is a love letter to the resilience and to the immigrant experience and life in Montreal. It was actually inspired by his mother's journey. Um, 
it's been longlisted for the, it was longlisted rather for the 2022 Giller Prize. It was one of the best works of fiction on the 2022 CBC books list. And it was also on Canada Reads for 2023. So this past year. Uh, so I, again, I'm not surprised this book made the list. Lots of buzz about it. The story centers on a, a woman, she's a widow and a mother, and she's left behind the Civil War and she arrives in Montreal. So you can sort of see where the this is pinned by his real life. The only work that she can find is as a hotline operator at a weight loss center where she fields calls from people who are trying to lose weight. And they share all kinds of secrets and stories with her about everything from, uh, you know, personal, personal inadequacies to marriages gone bad. Um, so she sort of gets this really interesting insight into the Canadian psyche. Uh, Nazra said that his mother moved to this new country with two suitcases and built a life from there. And he wanted to go back and revisit and pay homage to that challenge that ended up shaping his life. So I think this is a really beautifully written story. It's his fourth novel. Uh, and I, I think it really speaks to the immigrant experience in a way that um, I don't think other books have. So I, again, I think this is a really great book to pick up this year. And it was clearly a fan with Sela Readers. And another one that was uh, uh, certainly on a lot of uh, CeeLo readers' uh, list was a, a new book from John Grissom, the the iconic writer. It was The Boys from Biloxi, a legal thriller by John Grissom. Yeah, I'm not sure that there's anybody that writes legal thrillers like John Grissom. There's a reason that he's so popular. So um, I meant to check how many books he's written, but it's, you know, it's into the... Dozens. The, <laughs> Yeah, at least. Yeah. Very good. Uh, so he returns to Mississippi with this story of two sons of immigrant families who grew up as friends, but they ultimately find themselves on opposite sides of the law. And he's got all kinds of twists and, and turns that keep you really wanting to turn the page in this book. Um Kim, the the characters are Keith Rudy and Hugh Malcro, and they grow up in the 60s where they're childhood friends and little league baseball stars. But as teenagers, their life takes them in different directions. And Keith's father becomes a legendary prosecutor. He's determined to clean up the coast. And Hugh's father becomes the boss of a crime underground uh, syndicate. So Keith goes to law school and follows in his father's footsteps. And, and Hugh sort of does the same and follows in his father's. And the two families end up in this showdown in the courtroom. It is, uh, in Grisham style, a page turner. It has lots and lots of things to keep folks interested. Um, and, you know, I think it's a really fun, fast read that really is sort of returns Grisham to his fame and his, um, you know, the the characters that he created in the firm. And, and really, I, I think this is an excellent book. I wouldn't be surprised to see this one on the big screen at some point. Very good. And the last of the top five, certainly not the least of the list, is Is There Bacon in Heaven? First off, I love I love the title. It's a, great it's a title. memoir by yeah, Ali Hassan. Tell, tell, tell me more. So folks are probably familiar with uh, Ali Hassan. So he's a, a stand-up comedian. He's a CBC commentator. Um, he hosts Canada Read. So if you're a reader, you've probably interacted or intersected with him at some point or another. This is a memoir based on his stand-up comedy uh, show called Muslim Interrupted, and it is hilarious and insightful. So he shares his lifelong journey to become a cultural Muslim, learning how to walk that line of embracing his heritage while still grounding himself where he lives and, and following his passions. He tells stories about failing to learn Arabic. Uh, he talks about how his you know family alternately supports him or criticizes him. Uh, and 
he shares some stories about his family in Pakistan and, and visiting them. Um, you know, he's a comedian. So he also talks about things like discovering the wonders of pepperoni as a teenager and being a celebrity judge at Ribfest, which I think is, you know, where the title maybe came from. Uh, we learned that he's never really considered himself to be different until he hit his late teens. And then he had sort of this slow realization about overt and covert racism and, and his um, realization of that is really a very powerful uh, passage in the book. He has a knack for finding himself in really compromising situations that challenge his belief and his identities and uh, sort of ex shares those along the way with his observations about what it's like to be living as a, a brown man in Canada. Uh, he also talks a little bit about being a father of four and how he could possibly pass along connection to the Muslim faith uh, to his children and, and whether that's something he can deliver to them or something that they have to carve out from themselves. So very funny, but also very insightful, and very honest. And um, I think it would be a great book to, to pick up and read, especially with what's going on around in the, uh, the world these days, just to really understand what it's like to be, uh, you know, to be a Muslim and to be a Muslim. Very good, Karen. Thank you so much. That's all the time we have to go. Thank you. Goodbye. Have a great show, everybody. You've been watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Host, Dave Brown. Co-host producer, Alex Smythe. Sports reporter, Brock Richardson. Entertainment reporter, Laura Bain. Contributors, Ramia Muthan, Nisreen Abdel-Majid. Senior show producer, Andrika Delanero. Visual producer, Bruce Baclarian. Producers, Paul Daniel, Marianne Dion jones Bob Pagrak. Production assistant, Kingsley Juco. DV producer, Mark Phoenix. Director, Anastasia Spalding-Stenhouse. Control room operators, Daniel Panamondo, Eliza Rocco, Parker Oxtoby, Caitlin Robinson. Operations coordinator, Jordan Mulgrave. Manager of operations, Kyle Harper. Manager of live productions, Paula Deneen. Director of content development, Kara Nye. Vice President of Programming, John Melville. President and CEO, David Arrington. Give us your feedback, 1-866-509-4545. Copyright 2023, Accessible Media Inc. NAMI Original Production. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Join us weekly for The Pulse with host Joita Gupta, who brings us closer to issues impacting the disability community across Canada. Watch The Pulse on YouTube or listen wherever you download your AMI podcasts.